Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, March 29th, 2016, and I'm your host, Ariel Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. As the May Pleiadian lineup approaches, we have only three spots left for the ninth Starseed Crystal Quest to Arkansas, which is May 15th through the 21st. This is a soul group reunion, and the group is identified by having at least one of these six star markings, either natal or progressed, 25, 26, or 27 degrees in Taurus, Scorpio, Aquarius, Leo, Capricorn, and Cancer. If you feel the call of the crystals and aren't sure if you have those markings, I'll be happy to take a quick look at your charts and let you know if you do. Just send me your complete birth info with the date, the exact time, the place, as well as your current location, and send that to crystals, that is plural, crystals, at starseedhotline.com. Sue Andra Lyon is the visionary author and illustrator of How the Trees Got Their Voices, as well as White Butterfly and Her Wings of Many Colors, books that help young readers become aware of the deep connection between all living things in the connected world of Mother Earth. Her magnificent work helps readers of all ages to regard their world as a complex and interconnected tapestry of life and living things. Sue is also here to help our listeners to learn through her own journey to authoring and illustrating these two highly successful and magical children's books, along with her other work, including an adult coloring book, three magnificent card decks, and other products to help people awaken to the truth of who they really are. Her story will provide inspiration to anyone with a book in progress, and she has excellent advice for those planning to bring their voice forward in the form of the written word or visual images. She's the winner of more than 16 national awards, honors, and accolades for her work. And her work is available at satyama.com and that is spelled S like Sam A-T-I-A-M-A satyama.com At the top of the show it's the Starseed News with Anastasia bringing topics of interest to Starseeds that you won't hear in the mainstream news. And we want to thank Fiona and Vanya for hosting the Switchboard this evening for any listeners that have a question or a comment for our guest. If you'd like to chat with like-minded people, we have an online Starseed community at starseedhotline.ning.com, and we appreciate Tammy's dedication and help with our forum. You can download any show in our archives on iTunes or right from our Blog Talk Radio episode page using the cloud with an arrow icon. And we'd appreciate your support of our show, and you can do that by following, clicking follow on our page here at Blog Talk, and you'll get our weekly show notice. The toll-free number for StarseedHotline.com is 888-881-0881. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart, and the Stage, <coughs> excuse me, the stage 2 session 
is a one-on-one phone session available with Lavendar, Anastasia, or myself. Remote healing sessions for people and pets are also available with Tammy. If you have a birthday coming up, don't miss out on your 10 hours of power. You can find out when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And then if you want a Stage 2 interpretation of that solar return chart, please be sure to order it at least two or three months ahead of your birthday to make sure that you get the reading in before your 10 hours. So first this evening, I would like to introduce Anastasia and the ever-popular Starseed News. Good evening, (laughs) Ariel. Great to be with all of you this evening. Well, solar activity right now at this time is remaining very low. As I continue to read the news about the sun, looking at the years that I've done this, I really can't recall uh, such a long period where solar activity has remained so low. There's only one sunspot right now facing the Earth. It has a stable magnetic field, they say, that poses little to no threat for explosions. So the forecasters are saying there's no more than 1% chance of strong solar flares today. And the current moon phase is waning gibbous at 67% of full. And in case you didn't know this, the moon this month happened on the 23rd, and it's called the worm moon. And on April 22nd, we will have another full moon, which I want you to remember, because I think it's cool, is called the pink moon. So I'll keep you up on moon phases right along with what's going on with the sun. Now, speaking of the moon, there's a new study out a new study that was published in Nature just a a few days ago, reports the discovery of a rare event that Earth's moon slowly moved from its original axis roughly 3 billion years ago. Now, a planetary scientist at the Southern Methodist University of Dallas and his colleagues made the discovery while examining NASA data that's known to indicate uh, lunar polar hydrogen. Now, the hydrogen, which is detected by orbital instruments, isn't that something, is presumed to be in the form of ice hidden from the sun inside of craters that surrounds the moon's north and south poles. Exposure to direct sunlight causes the ice to boil off into space so that this ice, perhaps billions of years old, is a very sensitive marker of the moon's past orientation. Now, An odd offset of the ice from the moon's current north and south poles was a telltale indicator, they say. So they assembled a team of experts to take a closer look at the the data from NASA. And statistical analysis of this and modeling has revealed that the ice is offset at each pole by the same distance in exactly the opposite directions. What this indicates is that the moon's axis which you all know is the imaginary imaginary pole that runs north to south through the middle, has shifted at least six degrees, likely over the course of one billion years. The um, experts are saying, and I quote, this was such a surprising discovery. We tend to think that objects in the sky have always been the way we view them, but in this case, the face, the man in the moon, that's so familiar to us, has truly changed. It changed over a period of this amount of time. So a billion years ago, maybe there wasn't a man in the moon because the moon was tipped in another direction. Wow. You know, I really don't know why that should surprise anybody, but in the (laughs) sense that we're humans, (laughs) we tend to think in very short spaces of time. So 
sometimes we forget the grandeur of the universe around us. We tend to have very microscopic vision. Just part of being human. Well, in Buncombe County, North Carolina, there have been multiple reports of loud booms heard early last week on a Wednesday. Thirteen messages were from people who had been hearing the booms were received by authorities. They say that they found no cause of those booms. Uh, they have no idea. They Some people thought it was from seismic activity. However, the USGS has not reported any earthquakes around that area on its website up until today. So, again, more loud messages, or loud messages, hmm, loud booms from the sky, which might be messages, I don't know. <laughs> but that's still that's still ongoing. Well, you know, I'm I'm so averse to plastic and I think most of you are too and we're we're so in a corner with that stuff. I was thinking if I went to the market today and I asked if I could find a butcher, okay, some of them have bells where you can ring for somebody in the back. But even if you can find a butcher, if you said to him, please give me my steak on cardboard or give me this on a on a piece of uh, paper instead of styrofoam or plastic, please don't wrap it in plastic. He'd look at you like you were nuts, right? So Everywhere we go, everything is wrapped in plastic, and you all know that that has uh, serious implications to our health. In fact, humans generate more than 300 million tons of plastic annually. Now, that's an amount equal to the combined body weight of the entire global human adult population. And nearly half of the plastic is only used one time before it's tossed away and eventually finds its way into the oceans. Well, this isn't a fishtail, folks, because studies have shown now that in as little as maybe 20 years, it's a virtual certainty that every seabird on the planet will have plastic in its stomach. And recent estimates are indicating that upwards of 8 million tons of plastic are being added to the planet's oceans every year, the equivalent of a dump truck load of plastic every minute. That is enough plastic to have led one scientist to estimate that people who consume average amounts of seafood are ingesting approximately 11,000 particles of plastic into their bodies every year. People who consume average amounts of seafood are already ingesting plastic. So, anyway, that's a concern. And... You know, I think sometimes that we want to know what we can do with our lives. Well, wow, wouldn't it be fun to start a movement to get them to stop using so much plastic? Well, there's been a wildfire wildfire in Kansas. Uh, Firefighters have been trying to snuff out the biggest wildfire in Kansas history, and they had to get help from military helicopters just last Saturday. Um, They said that the prairie blazes have charred at least 620 square miles in Oklahoma also and southern Kansas. Some homes have been destroyed, some livestock. There have been no serious human injuries that have been reported. But they did say that each of those helicopters that they sent in had a 660-gallon bucket that was used to dump water onto the flames. And I had to share this little story with you. I... I don't know why. I just think sometimes we need to know what's going on outside of our circle. Sometimes, you know, we talk about the evolution of consciousness and the raising of consciousness, but out there there are some of those situations that are just kind of the opposite of that. And uh, for the third year in a row, 
the Pez Candy, uh, Pez Candy Company, you know, those little Pez things that, gosh, they've been around forever. Right. Well, the Pez, the Pez Candy Company uh, hosted an Easter egg hunt, and they structured their event to allow children to be grouped into three different age groups so that they could pick up 9,000 eggs scattered around the, the grounds. Now, there were more than enough eggs for everybody. But instead of allowing the four-year-olds to go first, their parents, <laughs> apparently so crazy about getting some candy, bum-rushed the fields and took the eggs for themselves. That's right. The parents went ahead of the children. The Pez, uh, Pez staff members said, quote, Unfortunately, people chose to enter the first field prior to anyone from our company starting the activity. Then the crowd moved to the second field, waiting only a couple of minutes, and proceeded to rush the field without being directed to do so and before the posted start time. Company officials said it was chaos, that parents immediately moved then into the third field, took over, and removed everything before the activity even got started. So we started talking to people and said, hey, this is supposed to start at a certain time, according to the general manager. And he said, well, that lasted about a minute, and everyone just rushed the field and scooped up everything. Witnesses said that children were trampled, parents knocked over children, and eggs were stolen out of people's <laughs> baskets. Oh my God. Peterson said, or the I should say the uh, one of the employees said, that the crowd was kind of like locusts. Is that bizarre or what? Well, that's that's a true story. I bet they well, won't in do Mexico, that next year. <laughs> just kidding. You don't think they can knocked do that over next year? the kids and wiped eggs from each other and wow, fasten your seatbelts, folks. Well, anyway, <laughs> the uh, the Popocatapel volcano has erupted again. We talk about that volcano in Mexico. It just erupted a couple of days ago, sending a cloud of ash and uh, smoke. 2,000 meters into the sky, and there's another eruption in a new volcano in Alaska, the Pavlov volcano, sent, has sent ash 20,000 feet high. Now, this volcano is located in the Aleutian Islands. This just erupted a couple of days ago on Sunday. Now, the agency said that uh, it is uh, causing tremors on the ground with the eruption, and so the USGS has raised the alert level to warning and the aviation warning to red. And in south-central Alaska, that's not all. In south-central Alaska, on the anniversary of the 1964 quake that happened, they had a 3.8 earthquake that struck east of Anchorage just on Sunday as well, same day as the eruption in another location. And that just happened to coincide with the 52nd anniversary of that devastating magnitude 9.2 quake that reshaped the entire south-central Alaska uh, landscape. So anyway, according to the Alaska Earthquake Center, uh, they said the trembler was just uh, at a depth of 16 miles. Uh, they said that uh, it could be felt in Anchorage. So it was the second, uh, let's see, no, that was not it. Um, I started to say it was the second uh, strongest ever recorded, but absolutely not. I'm just reading into something else. So anyway, a uh, 3.8 in Alaska on the same day that the volcano erupted. And in the Netherlands, Belgium, and the United Kingdom, uh, on Saturday, a bright meteor fireball was spotted 
interestingly enough, I talked with you last week about orange meteors and the orange, uh, excuse me, green meteors and the green comet. Well, this fireball was reported to have a green color to it. So I don't know if that's connected to that incoming fragment that I talked about last week, but there's another green fireball. That's the second one that was reported. Well, here's a story for you. You guys know how I love science and how weird it, weird it's getting. Well, a day they say will come in the near future when we won't have to do laundry anymore because clothes will be magically able to clean themselves once you expose them to sunlight. Why? Because clothes will be made with special nanostructures. A group of scientists from the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology have created a cloth with copper and silver-based nanostructures uh, that can absorb light. And the trick is that when these nanostructures are exposed to light, they release electrons that break down organic matter around them. Now, if a person is wearing a shirt with these nanostructures attached to the molecules of the textile, every time the shirt is exposed to light, the nanostructures will release dirt-destroying electrons that would clean up the shirt. Does anybody see a problem with that? Yeah, what is it going to do to your electrical field? <laughs> what happens when the electromagnetic radiation hits it? Huh. Well, yeah, what would prevent these nanostructures from breaking down our body's organic structures when you wear the clothes in the sun against your skin? We are organic, you know. I I, I don't know. I don't know. I scratched my head. So, (laughs) anywho, you know, why doesn't the writer of these articles that I pick up ever ask these kinds of questions? Nobody ever asks the right questions. Well, you guys, this is a wonderful story. This comes from the New York Times. Researchers have discovered waterfall climbing fish that has evolved similar to skeletal let me say, similar skeletal features as our ancestors did when they first started to walk. They say in one of the most famous chapters in evolution uh, that they have discovered, actually they've been talking about this ever since I can remember, that uh, 375 million years ago, our human ancestors emerged from the sea and they evolved from swimming fish to vertebrates that walked on land. You know, that's an old, old story, right? Well, a team of researchers has found a remarkable parallel to one of evolution's uh, signature events. In a cave in Thailand, assuming, by the way, that fish are the origination of humanity and all. But anyway, in a cave in Thailand, they've discovered that a blind fish walks the way land vertebrates do. This is a waterfall climbing cave fish. I'm not going to try to say the name, you guys. But they say it has evolved many of the skeletal features that hominoids have done for walking. Hmm. And, uh, oh, my computer refreshed, and you guys know what that means. I lost my place. Okay. Anyway, they say that it has a full-blown pelvis. What? Wow. An articulated pelvis in a fish? That's what they say. In case you want to check that out. Uh, Google waterfall climbing fish discovered by the Royal Veterinary College at the University of London. Okay, check that out. Okay. I I didn't get a chance to run that down, but when you think about that, is that remarkable? A fish that has a pelvis? Fish don't have pelvis, Mm. they have a spine. So maybe I ought to just do a little more investigation on that and report on that next week. Don't know. Here's a wonderful, sweet story. Um, 
a snorkeler who was uh, diving in, in Thailand waters came across a bittersweet scene. It was a scene of friendship between two little puffer fish. Well, one of those little sticky animals had somehow gotten trapped in a fishing net on the ocean floor. But rather than swim away, leaving his little friend behind, the other fish stayed by its side. Now, the diver didn't know how long the fish had been stuck there with his friend holding vigil. But he knew that the fish would not survive being trapped in the net. Now, the snorkeler happened to be a volunteer from the marine conservation group, and he'd found them in time. So he didn't have any other tools, but he found a shard of broken glass on the bottom of the sand, I guess, and he cut the puffer fish free. And all the while, even in light of the potential threat that that snorkeler posed <laughs> to the other little fish who was uh, holding vigil, he stayed, he stayed there. He didn't swim away. He didn't swim away from the diver. Oh stayed right next to his little friend and watched him get cut free. And once he cut the fish free, as the last bit of netting was removed uh, from that little puffer fish's body, the pair of them swam away into the ocean together. Is that cool? Oh. That's amazing. Wow. The more I find out about animals and trees in the process of doing the news, Everything is conscious, and love is a universal reality. Maybe not among humans as much as it needs to be, but among that which is connected to its spirit, love is truly universal, and it's out there. All right, last story for tonight. I had to share this with you. You know they have found preserved Ice Age puppies. What? Yep. This happened, I guess, a number of years ago, um, perhaps uh, five years ago, sometime back. But now the report comes out of Yahoo News that a scientist has performed an autopsy of the remains of a puppy that died over 12,000 years ago. And this puppy was discovered in Russia's northern Yakutia region. Now, they say that um, people that found this, they the puppy, they were looking for mammoth tusks. And uh, they were drawn to a steep riverbank uh, that held a deposit of ancient bones. And that's how they found this Ice Age puppy snout that was peeking out from the permafrost. So I guess they probably took this long to remove it, but it's been five years. And this pair of puppies uh, was taken into a, a laboratory. And what they found was amazing. And they're astonished because they said, I quote, to find a carnivorous mammal intact with skin, fur, and internal organs. He said this has never happened before in history. He said that uh, they removed uh, the puppy's brain. It sounds awful, but they did. And they said that this is the first time in the world they have found a dog that's that old, let alone a, an infant dog, a puppy. He said that you could never find puppies because they have thin bones and delicate skulls. It's a very extremely rare find, if not one of a kind. They've called it the two-mat dog. Now, there, there was, it was uh, found with a litter of puppies, by the way. It wasn't the only one. And the second puppy, uh, they checked its stomach, and guess what they found in it? Not meat. Plastic. <laughs> <laughs> You're hysterical. Sorry. No, that's, that's 12 million years from now when they start digging up our stuff, okay? Yeah, They'll find right. twigs and grass in us. Uh it was it was full of twigs and grass. Twigs ah. and grass. No meat. 
So they were wondering if perhaps the earliest dogs were not exclusively carnivorous, or maybe they just started eating grass after they were trapped by a mudslide and maybe began to starve. So they don't know. It's raised a question. Have dogs always been carnivorous? Nobody knows. Hmm. So isn't that fascinating? Puppies in the permafrost. They showed a picture of it on the Internet. It was pretty touching. It was a black dog. Of course, after being that old, who knows what the original fur color was, but that's really something. So uh, anyway, that'll be it for tonight's news. Ariel, it's going to be a great show. Absolutely. So thank you for the opportunity to be here, and I want to thank all the Starseed listeners for keeping me posted. You guys are the best. I really appreciate it. We got our reporters on the ground out there, Ariel. We sure do. Yes, we do. We sure do. Well, Anastasia, thank you so much for bringing us the Starseed News. So we will um, now um, introduce our guest, and let me get Lavendar, uh, let me get your microphone open. And uh, Sue, I'm going to get your microphone open. Okay. We are on the air, Lavendar and Sue Andra Lyon. Hello, everybody. Hello. Lavendar here. Well, so good to have you on our show, Sue. I wanted to wanted to ask you a few questions about yourself. Uh, what state do you live in? I live in Colorado. And oh, I, I love Colorado. I lived in Cripple right? Creek for seven years, so I... I got oh. to know Colorado pretty well. well um, we're in for another snowstorm here. It's starting to come in right now. Yeah, I've been noticing on the weather that you guys have been really having a lot of snow. March is our snowiest month, so we really need the snow. It's right. really important for the groundwater and everything, and you know, everything growing right. needs the snow. So, so when you started uh, awakening. How long have you been awake on the planet? Were you born awake? Or give us a little history about how you came to be a metaphysician. I was I was not awake when I was young. Well, I have to take that back. When I was really young, um, my sister wrote a poem for me for a birthday present uh, when I was in high school, and she was she was in high school. She's younger than me, and she in the poem it she talks about how she would watch me watching the butterflies. And I would have these wonderful, amazing experiences with butterflies and animals. And I would just, you know, time would just go by as I just became very um, kind of connected to all those living things and the wind. So, but unbeknownst to me, (laughs) that was called metaphysics. Uh, It was way into my adulthood when I really got my arms around the metaphysical way of uh, thinking about life. And I think the the book, How the Trees Got Their Voices, may have been a real beginning to that, where I was starting to really listen to uh, messages that would come in and pay attention to different events that would happen that I couldn't explain, but I knew that there was a reason for it. So I think that I I was a Girl Scout leader when I wrote the book, How the Trees Got Their Voices, and the trees actually were giving me the story. And I think when I started doing the illustrations for that and started really, um, really considering how I get my creative influences, I think that was probably one of the first times where I became really, really conscious 
about how much more there is to living than just our human existence. Right. So I I received this big box uh, of, of your material this morning, so I've spent uh, a lot of time today looking at your books and your cards. But I wanted to take the time to read to the audience on the back of the book how the trees got their voices. So just let me read what it says. Okay. While camping with a group of girls, Susan Andrew Lyon was given this tale about trees, nature, and also the relationship of living things within a forest ecosystem. This highly visual storybook not only presents a fascinating story that children ages three and older will enjoy, but also tells a second story about animals, plants, birds, and the earth itself. Children will learn about the integrated way in which Earth's inhabitants live in relationship to each other and learn the value of of respect for each form of life. The tale helps its readers to regard their world as a complex tapestry of life and living things. Children will be delighted by the thumbnail descriptions which surround the outside of each page, inviting them in and helping them learn about the world of the forest. This medium of a two-level story creates a unique, shared experience between children and the people who read to them because they are sharing the visual experience of this wonderful story in the forest world together. So tell us more about how this came about. There's got to be a story that led up to the writing of this book. (laughs) There is. I have always loved to camp, and I, I was a Girl Scout leader. I have I have two daughters, and I had a troop for each one of them. And I insisted that my kids go and tent camp, and we cooked over wood fires and, you know, did midnight hikes with our flashlights, those kinds of things. And that was like me just being in a place that I absolutely love. I I have loved to be outdoors. But in this particular camping trip, we had had we had had wind all night, and the girls were kind of cranky when they got up and cold. And after we had eaten our lunches, I said, "Why don't you go in the tent, your tent, and just sing?" And I took my wildflower book out to the fire circle, and just was steady. Lots of wildflowers still in September. This is in September, and I kept hearing these low voices. You know how you. You listen so hard that sometimes you feel your eye, your ears are just squeezed together. I kept hearing these voices, and I kept thinking, what in the world are they saying? And my eyes swung over to the stand of trees, and I said, oh, my goodness, the voices are coming from those trees. <laughs> so I walked over to the um, to this rock outcropping. There's this whole stand of evergreens and aspen trees, and this story just poured into me. My first thought was, oh, my goodness, I need to go to my tent, get my tablet, write this all down, and I knew it would be gone. So I just stood there. This whole story just came. It was in story form, just like a good dream, you know, that's in story form. And at the end, I realized, oh, my goodness, we've got to get the fires lit. We've got to get the, you know, the food prepared. And we went through all the mechanics of getting a meal put together. And after we had had our s'mores that night over a campfire, I told them the new modern myth, the ancient myth of how the trees got their voices. And what was so amazing, the kids went back to their tent you know, to get ready for bed. And I went into my tent. My co-leader was in there, and she goes, Sue, that was such a great story. Where did you get it? You know, where did you hear it? And I said, it just came to me. 
And that was that was the beginning of this story. And what was interesting is I came back home. I was raising kids. I have my own freelance business, you know, so I was working. Um, I put the story down. I wrote the story down. I started working on the illustrations, and then I put it away for five years. <laughs> and then I, I never forgot it. I would get it out and, you know, hone down the story a little bit more, and then I'd work on the illustrations a little bit more, and then I'd put it away for another five years. Well, about 20 years after I had actually had that experience, I decided I really need to get the illustrations done. And I didn't know where it was going to go, but I just knew that the illustrations needed to be done and the design work. You know, there's the writing part and there's the illustrating part, but there's the design of the book as well. And that's how that's how it came to be. So what so what year did you finally publish it? It was published in 2014. So just a couple years ago. Okay. Um, oh my goodness. I know. <laughs> it took a long time. But you know what? I think the timing was perfect. I do too. I th- I think if it had been any Sooner than that, I wouldn't have been prepared. Internally, maybe I wouldn't have been prepared to all the wonderful things that have happened since then, all my other all my other illustration work, all the drawings, all the um, decks of cards that I put out, all of that kind of stuff came in that, you know, that period of time where I started opening up more and more and more to maybe what my purpose is here on Earth. On Earth. I think sometimes age is our is the best thing that can happen to us because I just think we grow in wisdom and we I grew in wisdom and I grew in confidence about my own abilities. So I think the book coming out when it did and having the publisher take it on that I that I was fortunate to have Satyama. Um, I think the timing was just perfect. I do too. I think you had to wait for Karen. I do. I think that Karen was a major key key point for you for all of your work. I think I think you're really right. I, you know the the whole story of how Karen and I knew each other and how it came about that she decided to publish this book is you know I can't I can't say it's just chance or luck. I just don't think there are, there are coincidences like that. There's the spontaneity of the moment, you know, and the the way the cogs of the wheel are all shaped and formed, and then they're all put together, and then somebody somebody pushes the button, and they all start to work. And I think for all of us, for Satyama, for Karen, for me, all of it has been uh, it's it's good for all of us, <laughs> and hopefully it's good for all those children. Well, it's it's a synchronization that, that I think that probably, first of all, you probably had to wait until after 2012. I'm, I've been talking to lots of people in the last couple of years, and I'm finding out that, that whatever the whistle was that blew after 2012, all of us seemed to go to another realm of existence. It was almost like somebody had jerked the Band-Aid off our third eye, and we couldn't help ourselves after that. Three. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I and maybe the 2012 is was the um, that was the kick in the pants maybe for me to actually get the color illustrations done because before that I was just working on all the 
the roughs, you know, the pencil roughs for the illustrations. And it was two years before Karen took the job on that I started doing, actually doing the illustrations because I just do them in the evenings and whenever I get around to it. Right. So that was probably it. And then from there, now I had had, I had, had my decks of cards out before that, but in terms of children's books, which I think are, oh, I think, reading to children and children having the ability to be creative in their own minds when a book is read to them or when when they are able to read it themselves, I think is instrumental in children growing up and being uh, broad-minded and freer to think in more creative ways. I think children's literature is really important for that. So so how how is the distribution of this book do you do you contact schools or libraries tell me how you go about getting this wonderful little book about trees to these kids <laughs> well i have to say Karen Stooth of Satyama she and her sister own Satyama has done an amazing job. She's done the marketing research and the marketing, and she has put sealers out, and um, the book is being distributed by four different distributors now. It's on Amazon. And, And part of it is I love reading to kids. I go to schools and read to kids, and I read to kids who come to my studio and to my home. I think... Picking out good children's books is just the best. It's just the best. So I think we're all involved in that, you know, contacting uh, different organizations where we can put the, put the message out, get children to be excited about the environment, uh, to get children to be curious. And I do believe that when children know more about their environment, for example, how the trees got their voices has all those little kind of like sticky notes along the edge that gives gives the children facts about the animals and the earth and the flowers, the more that they know about their environment, the more respect they will have. And hopefully the more respect for each other as well. Right. And you know, the people just, who read to those children will have more respect for their environment. Right. So I wanted to ask you, um, are you connected to any big nonprofits that would be able to maybe – donate 50,000 copies to libraries around the country? Oh, I am not, but that would be that would be a wonderful goal. I'm that would be a wonderful out there. goal. Okay, we we need to yeah. find a nonprofit that yes. is, is into education of children and uh, get them to donate the this book to to the libraries. We need to work on that. Right. So we'll work on it together. This will be great. That has an idea of how we can do this. Please please um send an email uh, to uh, Sue so that she'll be able to uh, take this and run with it. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful little seed there. Yeah, I just it just flashed in my mind. I said, oh, I, I know that some if, if the, the right nonprofits would get a hold of this, they would love it and they would do it. Just have to get well, it. And, yeah. Well, and How the Trees Got Their Voices is this tale about um, being one with the universe, and all of us have gifts, and and we uh, we share our gifts. Particularly, the trees have these wonderful gifts. But white butterfly and her wings of many colors is all about how 
uh, white butterfly with all her innate gifts and she's very willing to share gets kind of tied up with her ego and her vanity and that gets her into big trouble. And in the end, she learns so much about herself and what her real true gifts are, her speed and her courage and her determination, all those absolutely wonderful gifts are what make her as glorious and magnificent as she is. And that I wanted to read on the back of the White Butterfly book what okay. it says, White Butterfly and her wings of many colors. White Butterfly is strong, courageous, and helpful, and she has one big wish. She wants spectacular wings. She discovers that vanity gets her into a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> it does. <laughs> but think of think of what's going on now. I mean, the... The cosmetic industry is a billion-dollar industry. There's such an effort to teach people that they aren't good enough the way they are and that somehow they have to change to be even better. And what I say and what this whole book is saying is, oh, no, you are so magnificent the way you are. Yeah, that's great. Let's talk a little bit now about your cards. I I opened those cards, and I just said, oh, my goodness, I love these cards. Now, I first got associated with animal cards from from, uh, Jamie Sam's deck. But yours are just magnificent. And the way that you put them in those little tin cases, that's very clever. Well, thank you. You know, you were talking about plastic, and I am such an environmentalist, and there is a part of me that cringes, you know, whenever I have to... Uh, use plastic. (laughs) So I thought the tins, even though they have a plastic front on it so that you can actually see the card through the front, the tins are recyclable, they're reusable, they are, you know, big enough for small treasures. One of my thoughts on putting a deck of cards in there is that a card you choose for that day can go on the top of the deck and you you close the tin so they're all together but you can see that card right through the top and so so you can put it in your kitchen or by your computer and have this nice silver hinged tin um with with the affirmations all tidily together there now have you spent any time at all with native americans have you have you done any, I have done, any work on reservations I, or have friends that are Native Americans? I have not. I have a friend who has spent a lot of time on Indian reservations, and I have um, I have done a great deal of research and reading, and um, I'm just I'm, I feel I'm very connected with the Native American culture. I had a a psychic tell me one time that I actually was a Indian princess. I have, my father was the chief uh, of an Apache tribe. This is before the Apaches became more um, uh, kind of like. aggressive, <laughs> aggressive. Yeah. Um, and and that, that I was very much one with the earth and with nature, as as most Indians are. You know, they they have learned very much to be one of the creatures on the earth, knowing that everything is is totally interlaced together. It's all dovetailed together. And when I started doing some research on Native American belief system around animals, it was just like everything clicked together. It was just so 
amazing how easy it was for me to remember the animals and to see the animals outside and go, oh, my goodness, you are giving me a message because they have the belief that I'm giving them a message. They are giving, I'm not giving them a message. I'm not calling them to give me advice. They are giving me advice. And my job is to pay attention and to be awake, to allow myself to be uh, given to, not just be a taker, but to be given to. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, if everyone could be so uh, tuned in, we would have so fewer wars. We would have so fewer aggressions. People would be kind to each other because they're they are really listening and paying attention to all the forces of nature coming in uh, to give us help. <sighs> that we're not alone. <sighs> it's it, good. It, this white butterfly book, the one after the how the trees got their voices. Have you done any any other children's books? Well, I have. I have another one. The very first one I did is called A Rocky Mountain uh, Tale of a Meadow Mountain Trail. And it's a simple story written by a woman in Denver. Uh, She wrote it for her son, actually. And it's about all the little creatures who cross the trail, across the meadow during a season. And do they make a trail? Each of the creatures says, it might say something like, worm looked over his shoulder. Did he see a trail? So it starts with the smallest animal, the worm. And then it goes to the next biggest, which is the snail. Um, and then it, it gradually all the animals come bigger and bigger, and it ends with the moose standing on the edge of the meadow. And then the moose watches the next little creature to come in the meadow, which is the little boy. And at the end of the story, all these creatures are gathered together, and there is a trail across the meadow. <laughs> and I've done another one, Nosy's Wild Ride on the Belle of Louisville. Belle of Louisville is a historic uh, steamboat based in Louisville, Kentucky. It is now a national um, landmark. Um, and it is, it is about this your rascal cat, Nosy, who uh, gets aboard the bell, and there are four kids that follow him around trying to grab him, so they put him off the bell before it you know, sets sail, and they don't succeed. But Nosy, this curious cat, takes him on a tour of this wonderful historic landmark, uh, so you can learn all about the bell. I'm doing another one right now that's Sammy the Seahorse, and that's a little um, biology book written for kids and illustrated in a true picture book fashion about seahorses and how phenomenal they are. Uh, so are you planning on I, doing one about owls? Owls are, seems to be some of our favorite totems in our starseed group. Have you oh, thought about doing a story about owls? I have not, but that would be so great because I've got great horned owls out here and they talk to one another. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. That would be great to include those in a story. I, I noticed that you, you I, have, I went through your books and looked for your owls and you've got owls sitting on the moon, so I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I don't know if you noticed that, but I, I, I asked questions of the children. Uh, do you think an owl can fly to the edge of the moon? And then... The next little um, fact in there is the moon is 283,000 miles away. <laughs> Maybe an owl couldn't do it. So, yeah, I like owls. I've got um, 
I've had great horned owls. I live outside of town, and I've had them here for decades, and they've raised their babies out here, and it's really a wonderful place to live. Yeah, great. So do you have any advice that you can give to other writers that are thinking about writing children's books? I say put your ideas down. Don't wait. We have a we have a thing in the United States that says if you don't win a gold medal in the Olympics, well, why do you even compete? And I say it's amazing just to be able to be strong enough to be to you know be able to play a sport. And maybe you're, you get even stronger, and then you can compete, and then you get in, you get stronger, and then maybe you can even be in the Olympics. But you have to start. You have to put those words down. And I say to anybody, it's very important. We don't have a storytelling history in our nation. We have, um, you know, Paul Bunyan and the Blue Ox. There are other nations who, I mean, their history comes up through their stories. I'll use Native Americans again. The the uh, grandfathers told the stories, and they would tell their whole Indian history and the, and the creation of the world through their stories. We have the ability to write the stories down. We have a written language. We have pencils. I say do it in pencil, not just on your computer. Um, just put your stories down. You don't even have to show them to anybody. But if you have an idea, put your stories down. If you if you really want to take it that next step farther, then you can contact somebody like Satyama. Satyama Writers Resource is a perfect place for people to start if they have a idea for a story, if they have a manuscript, if they don't know what the next step is, you know, go and get some advice, and um, maybe you're ready to, you know, contact an illustrator or you're ready to contact a printer. Satyama Writers Resource can really help with that. But the first step is to not hesitate about putting your stories down. And it could be your, it could be a children's book. It could be your own memoirs. I have a friend who is a certified um, um Oh, certified personal historian, that's her title. And she and I are very convinced that if we don't write our stories down, our experiences as human beings on this earth, because we all have different experiences, then it's lost to anybody else. And there's there's no way that we can uh, learn from each other and learn from different generations you know children learn from the older generations and vice versa but those stories are really important to put down you know the one thing that i was noticing about your artwork is is (laughs) now do you have this artwork on other things like t-shirts or cups or different things or do you just have them in the cards I the nice thing about doing illustration and being able to print them on paper is I have I have prints I have bookmarks I've got little mini decks I've got um, greeting cards I have a whole wide range of greeting cards animals and all my affirmation drawings as well I call oh, my poetry drawings so I've got a lot of stuff. <laughs> Yes, print is great. <laughs> you're, you're such but a I wonderful illustrator I, and an artist. I was looking at them, thinking, "Oh, gee, I'd love to, I'd love to have a T-shirt with that on it." You know, I it's did like, have a uh, line you're of very, T-shirts. Very, very talented, for, and oh, thank you. 
And I'm so I did have a line of T-shirts, but I've decided that I, you know, I have to keep all the sizes all the time to be able to do T-shirts. So I decided not to continue that. Yeah. So where can people purchase How the Trees Got Their Voices, White Butterfly, and all your other lovely products? Well, um, Satyama has, Satyama.com has um, many, most of those things. Um, I also have an Etsy site, uh, Sue Lion, L-I-O-N-I-N-K, dot Etsy.com. And my website's being revamped right now, but eventually it's going to be back up, suelion.com, and they will all be there. You can also get the um, books from Amazon, and many independent bookstores have the books in their stores. Okay, good, good. Well, Ariel is on the switchboard, and we have maybe some people that would like to um, ask you some questions. Are you ready to uh, maybe talk to a, a few of our callers? Oh, that'd be great. I hope I hope that we have uh, some waiting for you on the switchboard. So, Ariel, um, let's just take it an, another step further to see if we have anyone that wants to talk to Sue. And, Sue, it's been my pleasure talking to you. And, I, and thank Karen for me for um, having you come on the show for us today and for sending this beautiful box of beautiful products that you have your personal signature on. So oh, thank you so Ariel. much. Okay. Well, um, at this time, if anyone listening has a question or even just a comment for Sue, if you are listening already on the switchboard, if you've dialed in, then all you have to do is press 1 and uh, let us know that you want to come on the air. And if you're listening on your computer, then you're going to need to dial 917 889 8292, and then once you're in, press 1 so that we know you've got a question or a comment. So um, it'll, it'll take a few minutes for um, that process to complete. So um, I particularly am um, drawn to trees. I, I have a really strong relationship with trees, so I was really uh, intrigued with how the trees got their voices, just the the concept and the title. And um, Lavendar, do you remember when we were at that big, big oak tree and and it grunted? (laughs) That's the best word I could think of it. Um, Yeah, we were at the Tate House in Georgia where where several Native American Indians and also some, some blacks had been hung. People had, it was a hanging tree. Remember, it was a hanging tree, mm-hmm. and um, our friend Penny uh, went up to it, and, and it woofed at her. <laughs> it went woof, <laughs> and she jumped back. She said, that tree spoke to me, and, I, <laughs> and, I, and then I told her the history of it, and then she wanted to leave. <laughs> oh, yeah. remember I that? that trees, I believe yeah. that trees are wonderful sentinels, and they are uh, sentient beings that are... Um, that have an energy field that when we get within their energy field, we can become one with that energy. I put my hands around trees, and I've, I've had a vibration, a buzz from trees. I've been sitting outside at night, and I've had trees flash at me. And I think I think they're no different than any animal that crosses our path. They all have their messages as well. And I think they speak to us in the ways that they can 
one of the things that I have in the book is that the the trees get their voices because of the wind. And I think that it, when you are, you know, in a tent in the woods and the wind is blowing, all of those trees have different sounds and different creaks and different whispers and and they're all they're all um, totally alive and totally in communication with all being, you know, with all life. <laughs> mm. Well, you know, an interesting thing about the, the, this uh, this giant oak tree, it had to be 300 years old. There was a oh. pair of them in front of this, oh. this mansion where these, where these, you know, awful things took place. And the tree that was, um, you know, used for the atrocities, all of its branches were were like drawn down to the ground, drawing oh. downward. But the but the tree right next to it, which was the same age, the same species, an oak tree, had never been used for hanging, and all of its branches were stretching up to the sky. Well, the tree the tree that had been used for all those atrocities was in mourning and grief. And yeah. the tree standing next to it is bringing in the light. That, so yeah, the, balance the tree point. stretches its roots clear down into the earth, but it stretches its arm up into the, you know, as, as far as it can reach into the sky. It goes higher than any other plant on earth. So it reaches clear up into the sky, so it becomes this wonderful conduit of the power of the universe. So the tree next to the one that is grieving is very likely infusing the earth with light so that tree can even live 300 years. Mm-hmm. It's living, and it's a reminder for us to be compassionate beings. It is, yeah. I just That was the first time I ever heard a tree make, you know, I mean, it, it kind of grunted, and uh, <laughs> both of us jumped back. <laughs> But yeah, it was uh, it was suffering. But we have a caller um, ready to go. So let me get the um, microphone open first. You're going to be talking to Catherine, and Hi, Catherine. I just need to get that open. Hello, Catherine. You are on the air with Sue. Hi. Hi, Catherine. Hi. Well, thank you for taking my call. I was really inspired by your story, and I just synchronistically came upon the show tonight and um i i'm an aspiring children's book writer and i'm yes i've been (laughs) i've been in a critique group for about a year and i've i'm pretty far along with some of my stories and i the type of stories i want to i'm writing are similar to what you're writing oh so they are children's picture book type books. Yes, and they're and I want them to be spiritually focused or nature based. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I am not an illustrator though. I'm definitely just a writer. Well, I, I have to say that there are very few writers who are illustrators. And there are very few illustrators who are writers as well. So we we pretty much rely on each other to help, you know, help bring something to print and help bring the product out. So you're not alone. So are you at the stage now where you really would like to go the next step? You know, I, I mentioned in the show that Sakiyama has a writer's resource that might be a good jump-off point. 
Um, but I say if there's somebody in your community, I don't know where you are, but somebody in your community who is also an illustrator that you really like that person's work or, you know, I am an illustrator as well. If you'd like to talk to me offline, that would be great. I, I'd be glad okay. to, you know, talk or chat over email. That would be wonderful. Okay. But I'm really happy that you are to the point where you are, that you haven't given up on it. Getting a children's book, I think, is hard work. I think it's hard work because you keep having to hone the words and distill things down and come to um, come to the crux of it pretty fast. <laughs> but I think yeah. a children's book with the illustration is what tells the story. It makes it it's easy for me because I'm a author and an illustrator, and I can when I'm writing something, I can think of how I want the illustrations to go. You as a writer, you may need to be, you know, partnering with somebody who has that visual image of where where your words can go into pictures, you know, and how the pictures support the words and how the words support the illustrations. So if you're to that point, then I would say, you know, one of those two um, step-up points would be really good. Okay. Um, um, another part of my question was, yeah, about the publishing, because I know you can self-publish which it, or go through a publisher and agents, and it sounds like Satyama is more of a self-publisher. Or... Yes. I mean, Satyama, Satyama actually, the Writer's Resource branch of Satyama is really um, means for you to be able to pick and choose what services that they can offer. They can, they can take it from the very beginning. They can do it you know, do the editing, take your manuscript, do the editing, give you advice on what would be good in a children's book and what wouldn't, um, take you to um, crowdfunding, to um, printing, to distribution, to um, setting up a web page, all of that kind of stuff. Or you can pick and choose what you want to do, you know, how much you want to do yourself, how much you want them to do. Self-publishing is a huge industry now. In the olden days, um, just being able to get a publisher was almost impossible. And now it's even, in some ways it's even worse because there are not a lot of publishers, established publishers, who are willing to take risks on putting a book out and not having it a bestseller. So many of the established publishers will take on people who have already published. (laughs) Well, how do you get your first book out there? And self-publishing, now there's, because of self-publishing, there's a lot of horrible stuff out there too. But it is a way for you to be able to um, get your book out there, actually market it and get it into bookstores and get it into the hands of children without having to go through the more formal process of hiring an established publisher, you know, a traditional publisher. Right. I would say of all the books that I've designed and illustrated, and I've designed a lot of adult books as well, uh, all of them have been self-published. I have one guy who's working on his fifth book, and his books have all been through his own publishing company. I'm doing another one oh, okay. now. It's the second one of hers. So they're all 
self-published. Of course, the work falls on your shoulders to make sure that you are getting your message out there and you're, um, you know, getting it marketed in the in the ways that you want to. But it's definitely an avenue that is a distinct possibility. So that that's another good point. How did you get yourself noticed or known or was it just... <laughs> Speaking of synchronicity, <laughs> here I am, you know, 20 years after I had actually written the story and finally getting the illustrations out there and, you know, and getting the illustrations done. Well, Karen and I had met, Karen Stuth of Satyama, and I had met, you know, um, a few years before, and she and another woman are working on a board game. And they asked me to be part of this team. So I've, I've designed the, you know, the look of the board game and doing all of the graphic design work on this board game, and which is close to beta testing right now. So we're really excited about that. Well, Karen, being a marketing research person and a publisher, and Julie, who has written four books, I thought, well, what a perfect people to bounce this off of <laughs> because... I I needed to know. I needed to take my guts in hand and see if this had any cure in it. I didn't know exactly where I was going to go with this book, but I knew that they would give me honest advice. So mm-hmm. when we got together for one of our board game meetings, um, they sat and listened to me read the story. And Karen ask if she could publish the book. So that's how it works. <laughs> that's how it works. And she's done a great job on this book. I mean, good heavens, it wouldn't have gone near as far on my own <laughs> on my own volition when I run a full time freelance business. So if it, if it and so if but it got into the right hands. You know, I I really believe that the book wasn't I wasn't ready or the book wasn't ready until I started working on it in probably 2012. Lavender is right. Um, so the so the timing was perfect. The timing for her was perfect, and the timing for me was perfect. And I I think when I put when I finally put my intention out there, I let the universe know that I was open to having just to even reading this story to somebody. I was open to that that the universe answered me this way. (laughs) So I think the same thing for anybody out there, not just you, but for anybody out there, that when there is, um, um, when you are inside of yourself uh, confident in what you're doing, that you can actually put the energy out to say, okay, I'm ready for the next step, then that will happen. That will happen. Mm. I, I have no that. that. <laughs> I've done I've done that with all of my freelance work. Everything. It's just I put the energy out that these are the clients that I would like, and this is the work that I would like, and I think it happens that way. We are the ones that block that energy by doubting ourselves or mm. uh, questioning questioning things, oh, well, did it really happen that way, you know, or, oh, you know, I I can't possibly imagine this to happen. We're the ones that block that energy. Mm -hmm. So just open yourself up to the next step. 
That's great. Thank you. And I, I also wanted to say thank you to Lavendar and Ariel. I, I had a reading from one of you, and I, I do have some star seed markings, but I don't remember what they are. So um, I wanted to say thank you to that. That's great. Well, you're welcome. So um, has Sue answered your questions? Yes. Excellent. Super. Great question. <laughs> well, Catherine, thank you so much for calling in, and I'm glad that you found the show. Very good timing there. Thank you there. so much. Yeah. So keep up, keep up the work and uh, look into Satyama. I think it would be good for you. I will do. I, I definitely will. Okay. That's great. All right, great. Thank you. Well, thank Thanks you. so much for calling. Bye-bye. Yep, good night. So, well, she asked all the right questions, and and you gave great answers. And I think that um, looking, you probably answered, well, I thought we had another caller with questions, but you probably answered what they wanted to know uh, <laughs> in that last call. So um, is there anything else that you would like to share with the audience before we wrap up? That's right. Um, don't limit your creativity. I think there's so many people who feel that if they aren't the best, then they they can't do it. And I say, oh my goodness, use use all that wonderful creativity within yourselves to um, put your put yourself out there. When I taught calligraphy in um, Community College of Denver, uh, my students had to keep a calligraphy notebook a sketchbook, and they just um, practiced in there. And I, I always told them, practice, take it wherever you go. Get a book that will fit in your purse and put your ideas down. And when you um, calligraphers are interested in words, so if you're in a diner and you see this great quote, drag out your calligraphy sketchbook and put, put it down. You know, use what you're learning in calligraphy class, but it doesn't have to be perfect. And the only person you have to show this to, this calligraphy sketchbook, is me, the teacher, uh, (laughs) so that I can Mm -hmm. check off that you're doing your calligraphy sketchbook, but that's the only person you have to show it to. You don't have to show it to anyone else. So you don't have to compare yourself to anyone else. You don't have to um, think of yourself as not as good as somebody else. You are who you are, and that the the wisdom, the innate wisdom that you have will come through in what you write and what you draw. So the the worst thing that can happen is not to put it down. Right. Right. That is such good advice. And and truly I think a lot of a lot of people have such strong desire to to do something exceptional that and they keep you know tweaking and oh it's not good enough yet it's not good enough yet mm-hmm. and and you can you can do that and the, and nothing ever comes to fruition because uh, like you said be that, our, that's a we're <laughs> we are our own worst critics and unfortunately many of us are very much perfectionists and we want to thing to be perfect when we first start, you know, perfect when we start. Well, how can it be perfect when we start? We have to practice. If we don't ever practice, it won't ever get better. You know, the words won't come more freely and the the drawings 
will still be stilted. We just have to practice. And that might be a lifetime. It might be that we never get to the point where we get the perfect, I put that in quotation marks, the perfect finished product. But you know what? You're going to have your story out there. You're going to have your illustrations there. You're going to be proud of the fact that you actually took the courage to put something down. I think that's a really wonderful thing. It is. Um, I had I was talking to another very successful author, and I remember this thing that she said: "Do not edit while you're writing." Does that sound familiar? <laughs> oh, I think it's great, and this is one of the reasons I say to people: write with a pencil on paper, away from your computer. Just write. Put it down. There is something about, there's something wonderful that goes on in your brain when you actually feel the pencil in your hand and you're, and you're writing, 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 writing. And you always can go back. Oh my goodness, you should see some of my stuff. I've torn places off that I've written and I've moved paragraphs around, but I get it down first. <laughs> and I do the right. same with drawings. I get the drawing draw and I go oh no I don't like that I don't like that corner and I work on tracing paper and I pull that off and I put something else off and I tape it and when I do (laughs) these uh, demos in elementary schools show children some of my original drawings and I show them how I start working these little thumbnails and the working drawings and the working drawings are all these massive pieces of paper that are taped together and crossed out here and redrawn here and they they get a whole different idea about not having to have perfect drawings when they draw something. If they're going to draw a dog, you can draw it, and then you can draw it again. <laughs> so I think that's really it's really important for people to feel that they um, they can take the time to do it the way they ultimately want to do it. So. There are lots of drafts. <laughs> right, yeah. And I suppose it was really good for the kids to see the process. And it's like, here's the finished product, but look what came before. And, I think um, it's really, I think you're right. I think the kids get a, a lot out of a demo like that where they see these little, tiny, little thumbnails where I've read the manuscript and I'm putting down this. And, um, and they're simple, but they show enough of how I want the flow of the story to go. And, but the main thing is that it shows them that they can go back. They can review. They, can, they have to get their idea down first. And then later on they can go back and they can change their minds and they can, you know, they can tear things apart and put it back together again. So if well, we sure. don't get the words down first, if we don't get them down, just let them flow. Just get them out of your head and just let them flow. If we don't do that first, then we don't have anything to come back to later on. So we've got to get it down first. That's right. That's right. And, I, you know, I think that really applies to a lot of things, even beyond uh, books and illustrations, um, ideas for projects and, uh, you know, just get the ideas down, get the rough ideas down, mm-hmm. and then you can go back and hone it. But, and I tell this to people oh. all the time, always remember that the only perfection in the third dimension is Mother Nature. So it's it's an <laughs> elusive thing. You know, so if you think that 
that um, you know that you can make something perfect and you keep pursuing that, it's like you know the dog chasing his tail because even you know, myself because I kind of learned this the hard way. I, I would um, and I'm talking about my creations with music. I'd listen oh. to it and say, "That's it." I nailed it. That is right, exactly. And the next day I go back and listen to it. Oh, except for that one thing. You know, it's like the day before I didn't hear it. So that that perf- that concept of perfection is so subjective. That well, And it changes from elusive. day to day, even with the same person. Well, so I mean, here, how the trees got their voices. I looked at that. I thought, oh, everything is so perfect. And I, I have found two mistakes in the illustrations and most people would never even see them. But for me, it's like, oh, my goodness, Sue, what have you done? <laughs> but then <laughs> I, remind myself, I remind myself that this is not meant to be perfect. You know, the Native American weavers, I don't know if you know this, but the Navajo weavers, who are just absolutely some of the best weavers in the entire, on the entire earth, always left an error in their weaving. They left a mistake in there on purpose. And what happens then is all of that energy, you know, that maybe that negative energy that we put into it, the day that we were angry when we were weaving or the the day that we were um, full of um, remorse or guilt or whatever and we're putting it into our creative output that can be released well look they even built in a mistake into their weaving so they could release any of that kind of energy well let's think about it you and your music and me and my illustration and somebody who sews clothes or does knitting or somebody who's coming up with a perfect computer computer program um all of us, if we if we allow ourselves to be open to those mistakes, look what can happen because of the mistakes. We'll find something else that's equally as wonderful that counterbalances it. And I think that that's, that is just such a cool thing about that creative process in anything that we do. And we're the ones that block the energy, just like I was telling Catherine. It's, um, we're the ones that put the skids on things because we're so afraid of making a mistake or not making it perfect. And then we block all of that wonderful creativity that could be coming. So, And and that's got to come either from some inner fear or some inner vanity or some, you know, ego driven motivation, um, you know, in the, in the pride. It's like, here, look at this. It's perfect. Um, most people wouldn't wouldn't notice if it weren't, and you know when you're coming from, you know, with those, working with those um, lower energies, it's, it is going to block you because the motivation isn't there. It's like just allow it to flow. It comes out of the, you know, the feminine side, the artistic, creative side. Just mm-hmm. just let it flow and don't put that 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 logical 3D clamp on it. It's like oh yes, but. No, no, just do it. So I, I love well, I love your advice and what you're saying. I have to say, working with children, I I love working with children because they can get going on something and they just they have just disappeared into whatever they're doing. They the time stands still and they're choosing colors and they're making lines and they're doing this and they're trying that. They don't have this 
preconceived notion of what it has to be in the end, and they just allow the creativity to come through. And I was working with this uh, second-grade class down in South Denver doing one of the demos, and I could just see from the artwork on their walls, the teacher is great, and the artwork that was on the walls is that they were they were totally involved in their creation. Every one of them was different. I've taught drawing classes to adults, and it is amazing. We I'll set up, you know basic drawing, <laughs> drawing 101, and we set, I set up a um, kind of a still life, and I'll say, okay, this is what I would like for you to do: draw this whole still life. Don't pick up your pencil. Every single one of them is different, even though they're we're using the same materials, same size tablets, the same pens, the same setup. Every one of them is different. And I had one lady that says, Sue, you're not teaching us to draw. You're teaching us to see. And I think children have that. They already have that inside of them. They're just right. drawing what they see instead of, you know, studying art history and making it look like the you know, Mona Lisa or whatever it is. Yeah. You have to be <laughs> as good as that or a preconceived notion of what it has to be. And just allow, allow our creativity to take off. Wonderful. That's right. That's right. And it doesn't matter what other people think. It what matters is that you get it out there. You you do you know, and it's it's your creation and in that it is perfect. And it is. You know, the opinions <laughs> of others um won't affect that at all and it won't affect the fact that you produced something of yourself in giving um to others. And that's, that's a perfect act there. That is. Uh, that's yeah. a really, you said that really beautifully. I think that is, that's exactly what perfection is, is allowing ourselves to just, um, ex- just to release whatever is inside of us and, and allow it to flow. It just flows. It took me a lot of years to learn that, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, it's got to be great. I mean, because children, in a lot of ways, um, have a lot of a lot more and then as as you said as they get older they start losing that or or forgetting that or having it conditioned out of them so it's got to be really really rewarding to to work with um young people who are open and innocent and they don't really care what you think they're doing their thing they're playing with their colors and their pencils and yep. um it's they don't really have that that trepidation yet about Oh, what if somebody doesn't like it? Oh, it's like, so what? Do you like it? You know? <laughs> yeah. So, right. Well, it's just been delightful having you with us this evening. Thank you and so much. I, it's I been do encourage talking with all of you. <laughs> well, it is our pleasure, and um, we encourage everybody to check out your books and um, your work available on satiyama.com. S A T I A M A dot com. And, yeah, the the writer's resources. We had Karen on the show a while back, and um, you could actually, uh, if you're listening, go back into the archives and look for uh, the Satyama episode, and you can hear even more about what they have to offer. But we are just delighted that you spent this time with us this evening and um, looking forward to what's coming out next. Well, thank you. I am too. <laughs> yes, well, and when it'll you be, get to that point, be great, 
there, I have so many ideas, you know, it's just time. <laughs> well, sure, sure. And when you do get to that point, let us know, and you can come back and tell us all about it. Oh, that would be so great. Thank you. Yeah, you're so welcome. So we have been talking to Sue Andra Lyon, and it has just been our pleasure to have you with us. So on behalf of everyone here at Starseed Radio Academy, we wish you a good night and a great week. So good night, everybody. Good night, Sue. Good night. Thank you. Have a wonderful week. You too. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 